And so the goal of the engineering leadership program is to teach leadership by way of making technical minds aware of non-technical questions that may come their way and expose them to the rich history of debates around questions of the human good. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr. In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. And today, we welcome our guest, Dr. Shiloh Brooks. Shiloh is an associate faculty director of the Benson Center. He's a faculty director of the Engineering Leadership Program, and he also hosts the Free Mind podcast at the Benson Center. As he says in the podcast, he wears a lot of hats, and just listening to his resume, I get a little tired. And so today, I think you're going to enjoy this discussion that we have with Shiloh. I always love to really kind of get inside the mind of Shiloh because we go in a lot of different uh, directions, and that's a lot of fun for me and, and Tara. And so today, we're going to cover topics like dogma and free inquiry, and what is the purpose of the university? Are we pursuers of truth, and, and should we be, obviously, teaching that to our students? And, and what does that look like, and how does that fit in with you know, a lot of current events like social media censorship and cancel culture and people being forced out of their jobs because they say the wrong thing. So we're going to talk about civic discourse. We're also going to cover things like leadership is, as Shiloh says, it is something that transcends discipline. What does that mean? And so you're certainly going to want to listen to that as we dig deep into that. So I hope you enjoy this discussion with Shiloh. I, I know that Tara and I did, and let's get to it. All right. Today, we're going to talk with Mr. Shiloh Brooks. Uh, you know, let's let's just jump right into it, Shiloh. Um, for, for those of, uh, of our listeners that are not familiar with you, what uh, what do you what have you been up to lately, and uh, what do you do at the University of Colorado? Yeah, so I do a couple things. Um, I wear a number of hats. So one is uh, I direct the engineering leadership program in the College of Engineering and Applied Science, and also I'm a faculty member in that program. Uh, that program is uh, you know we'll talk about it a little later, but it's a liberal arts program for engineers in which we teach uh, leadership by way of great books in all disciplines, politics, philosophy, literature, uh, science, et cetera. Um, but the second thing I do at CU is that I'm the associate uh, director in the College of Arts and Sciences. So, you know, two positions across two colleges of uh, the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization, which is a center that hopes to bring to campus uh, a, a bit more viewpoint diversity, uh, heterodox viewpoints, to emphasize the importance, not merely of free speech, but also of free inquiry, that at a university, any question can be posed and any answer can be given, and we all have the right to be wrong, and we should debate with one another civilly, um, uh, regardless of our own uh, political views or viewpoints. So those are the two things that I spend 90% of my time on uh, at the university, in addition to other little ventures here and there. And my first thought is, how in the world does liberal arts go together with engineering? How does that work? And 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 what would you say to that? 
Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I think I, I put it in a number of different ways, but I think the briefest way to put it is as follows. Engineers create tools or instruments. These instruments are not ends in themselves. So let's say that a computer scientist uh, or uh, an aerospace engineer creates a craft or a computer scientist creates a new app um, or some new device like an iPhone. These are not merely ends in themselves. They're instruments for something else. So you have an iPhone so that it connects you to other people and there are apps on it that allow you to talk to your family and deal with your finances and uh, use Facebook or something like this. And Facebook is itself merely an instrument to, as Mark Zuckerberg says, make the world more open and connected. But the difficulty there is that um, insofar as these things are merely instruments, they don't address the question of what the, the end or, or good of human life should be. In other words, they're merely instrumental. So you can think of the way um, a, if you play the saxophone, a saxophone can't play uh, its own song. And it can't determine what a good song or a bad song is either. That, that requires a human being. A human being composes a song, plays the song for other human beings, and other human beings say, that's a great song, or that's a bad song. It's not the instrument itself which determines the good which it produces. Well, the same is true in engineering. And so the question of the human good, what good should technology be deployed for the sake of? How should these instruments be used to promote good and not ill? Those are the kinds of questions that I think you need to bring to bear uh, the liberal arts on to answer. And so you can think of things like uh, these very ambitious people in Silicon Valley, people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, who when they were young were very technically minded people and created platforms, which there was tremendous enthusiasm about, uh, but which unbeknownst to them when they were 18 in their college dorm rooms, have now had radical effects on the way, uh, say, our elections run, on human psychology, the way we see ourselves, uh, our vanity, the way we love. You can think of something like Tinder and what it's done to romantic longing, just swiping past a person who you don't think is physically attractive. This is a very odd way of going about analyzing someone uh, for love purposes. Um, and so you can see that these things are merely instruments whose ends perhaps their creators were not aware of. And so the goal of the engineering leadership program is to teach leadership by way of making technical minds aware of non-technical questions that may come their way and expose them to the rich history uh, of debates around questions of the human good. Um, so that's in a nutshell what the engineering leadership program is about. And it's why I think liberal arts have to be in conversation with the engineering discipline. I have to say, I'm I'm fairly new to CU and started working um, in the research and innovation office just a couple of months ago. And when Ron actually kind of introduced me to the engineering leadership program, I was absolutely elated because coming from a world of working with entrepreneurs, most of which are engineers, I've seen this huge need to work with them on not just storytelling, but relationship building leadership skills, even management skills to some extent. So the fact that the university is doing this with students before they even get out into the real world, I think is, is fascinating to me. But I'm curious from you, because you've been such a big part of this program, what do you think, especially as you're talking about technology, and technology is only going to continue to grow, especially as we're all working from home now, 
what do you think some of the massive challenges are and have been and will continue to be when it comes to um, bringing more and more people, skills, and leadership into the world of engineering? There are all kinds of axes on which to approach this question. I think the one that is on everyone's mind now um, is Silicon Valley and the way some of those technologies have perhaps been uh, unidimensional and harmful. I suspect, I don't know if any of your listeners have heard or if either of you have heard of this documentary, which was made on Netflix uh, called uh, The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. uh, and this man, Tristan Harris, he and I are in a certain sense birds of a feather, although he comes at it from the technical side and I try to come at it from the side of philosophy. So the sorts of challenges that, that engineers and engineering, uh, especially computer science uh, and these sorts of things face is one has to get honest about the degree to which we are turning, as Tristan Harris puts it, the customer into the product. And by that, I mean the, that the, the services are free uh, to sign up for. And what they're selling is your data to advertisers. You are the product. And the moral and ethical dilemmas that these things pose, this seems to me to be, you know, for instance, one dimension of the challenge that engineering faces. Another is just the algorithms that show you stories that you like create echo chambers and which produce uh, extraordinary political polarization of the sort that did not exist when your parents, my parents, uh, your grandparents and my grandparents were uh, interfacing with their neighbors at work and at home. And this is to say nothing, by the way, of things like advancements in biotechnology. To what degree are we comfortable altering what a human being is at the genetic level? To what degree are we comfortable enhancing the human being. Hum humanity has a history of doing things that it believes are good. You can see this, say, with Facebook. It was supposed to make the world more open and connected. But those things turn out to be not so good, uh, and our intentions were wonderful. But the results, oftentimes, we don't see uh, how they can go awry. So this is true not merely in, in uh, computer science and these sorts of things, but even uh, biotechnology. Or I, I could even level a critique, and this will probably shock some of your listeners, of the desire to explore space more, to go further and further into the solar system. Um, the further we go, the smaller we become. Hannah Arendt, who's a philosopher, wrote an essay called The Conquest of Space and the Stature of Man. And she argues that the further into space we get, the smaller and less anthropocentric the human being, uh, the world will become, which means the humanity won't consider itself the center of the world anymore. Perhaps that's good and perhaps that's true, but on the other hand, what does that do to our uh, understanding of ourselves. So I, my suspicion is that um, all industries, all technology and engineering industries could benefit from people who can reflect intelligently on the questions that they themselves don't want to ask. And that's, that's what our program is about. You know, as an engineer myself, I feel like most programs are not doing this. And so for me, I echo what Tara says that, that I think this is very much needed for all of our engineers to, to see that connection and to understand that your widget, no matter how great it is, um, it goes out into the world and it has an impact, as you say, um, Shiloh. Going back to the, the Netflix special, uh, Social Dilemma, let me ask you this, Shiloh, which comes up a lot with my students, and, and I'm not sure I have a good answer. Um, does social media need regulation from the government? You know, in a country where we like to talk a lot about free speech, are we, I mean, what does that look like? Do, I guess there's two parts to that question. Should there be more regulation? And if there is, are we violating our, our premise of, of free speech? It's a hard question. On the one hand, 
the First Amendment applies to the government, not to private corporations. So any private corporation is free to censor whatever speech it thinks is not in keeping with its terms of service. The difficulty here is we have never had private corporations that uh, have had the capacity to run what I'll call a virtual public square. In other words, this is altogether new. You know, the First Amendment is meant to keep the government from encroaching on your right to express yourself. Action in the physical public square has declined, and these virtual public squares have achieved some prominence. The question becomes, well, what are the responsibilities, it seems to me you're asking, Ron, of the government in this case, and then what are the responsibilities of the companies themselves? And this is, uh, this is a very difficult question. I mean, the difficulty is as follows. If your president uses Twitter as his or her primary form of communication, and a private American citizen is banned from that platform for saying something offensive in some other venue on the platform. What you've essentially done is you've banned a private citizen from the primary form of communication of the president of the United States. And so there's, there is a there there. There is a real problem. On the other hand, uh, I'm of the mind that um, the government typically does not do things well when it tries to do things of this sort. And so my view is uh, that perhaps some regulation is necessary from the financial or corporate level. After all, we're recording this in December and just yesterday, day before yesterday, Facebook uh, had an antitrust suit brought against it uh, by the United States government and 48 attorneys general. So it seems to me that some sort of regulation for these companies is necessary, but content regulation is a very dangerous business. It's not a business I think the government wants to get into. And so as, as I think Tristan Harris argues, there have to be incentives for the companies to do right by the users. Mm. That's what we need is in a certain sense, a new business model, maybe not new laws. And it's going to take some innovator to come along and say, look, here's an ethical business model and I'm making money on it. And then everybody's going to get jealous and everybody's going to say, well, heck, we could, we ought to do that too. Do, do you think Mark Zuckerberg cares about my welfare or yours? I know he likes to say he does, <laughs> but, but I, I have my, my doubts. I'm putting a lot of trust and faith in Mark Zuckerberg to look out for my, I guess, for my welfare without sounding like, you know, I'm playing the victim here. But I think there's a lot of things going on in the background that, that we don't know about. And so I guess, does the federal government need to come in there and shine a light on that? Or, or do we just say, you know what, we, we expect, uh, you know, folks like uh, Mr. Zuckerberg to do the right thing? I think... Um that a light does need to be shined on some of these things. I'm not persuaded that the government needs to do it. Um, I, my sense is that the employees themselves are doing it. You have people like Tristan Harris and others who have worked at these companies who are coming out and saying, look, we either didn't know what we were doing or we knew what we were doing and we were deliberately deceiving people and doing things in a way that uh, I now find unethical and I've, I've quit my job. Now, this is easy for them to say because they've also been enriched. By, by having done those things. And now they're on the other side of being, you know, multimillionaires. And they're like, well, it was very bad. So there's a bit of hypocrisy in, uh, you know, in a certain sense there. But my hope is that as these people come out, uh, as people become more aware of some of the harms that these platforms are causing, certainly psychologically, um, that the problem uh, will be one that these folks are forced uh, to confront themselves. And I think that there's some evidence of this, you know, people talk about the way that, you know, uh, when you first got your smartphone, there was no way for you to see how much time you spend on it per day. 
but now there is, and that this is akin in a certain sense to the first step um, of putting a Surgeon General's warning, the way you'd find these on cigarettes that say, warning, if you uh, smoke these, they will kill you. Well, by letting you know how much time you spend on your phone, it's sort of like warning, uh, this has taken over your life and you've got a, you've got a problem. Whether that's true or not, I can't say, but I, I will say one final thing on this, and that is younger people, so our students now, students who are 17, 18, they grew up in a world in which these things were in the water and in the air, and they're not so gullible as we are. For example, when your grandmother is on Facebook and sees an article that's crazy, she's used to seeing uh, news sources that are reputable in the paper. And so she can be like, well, that's true. They, you know, that did happen. Whereas young people have been so bombarded with so much junk that they're like really skeptical. And they're like, that's a bunch of, you know, the same thing happened with the printing press. It used to be that anything that was printed was true. But once the industrial revolution happened and the printing press went crazy, you could print all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, and for a while it had a really deleterious effect because people were like, well, it's printed. It must be true. But now, of course, we read books all the time and we're like, well, that's a bunch of BS. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. So it's not clear to me that uh, two things won't happen. The companies won't catch up in a way and we will catch up, too. So you're saying what's on the Internet is not true? It's crazy, right? <laughs> it I don't is, believe it. it is. So Shiloh, going back um, to you know what what you all are you all I say you and Ron are, are working on with a bunch of other people in, in the leadership program within the engineering department, and you bring a a very different kind of look at what our younger leaders are going to need to take into the workplace, and we're talking about a lot of it here, especially around technology and how that's changing, but. Um, I love uh, your differentiation between leadership and management. And I think this is when I'm talking to young leaders uh, that are new CEOs for companies, I hear that a lot. What's the difference? And I've been hearing that for 20 years. What's the difference between leading and managing? It's the same thing, is it not? And I love your uh, writings on this that are you know out on the internet. And you're saying that um, it, it takes a lot of intellectual agility, athleticism, um, you need to kind of break the rules and be the rule maker rather than the rule follower. But can you kind of dig into that a little bit with us? Like, how do you differentiate between leadership and management for young people getting ready to go out into the world? That's a hard question. And this is something that's been debated in uh, literature, business schools and psychologies for a long time. And uh, I've benefited a lot from those people, uh, you know, with respect to what I'm going to say. But from my point of view, and this is not um, this is not a criticism or a uh, downgrading of the importance of education and management. It's quite important. It's very important. I think business school and management programs are very important. I'm rostered faculty, as Ron knows, in a management program. I will say that I think that management is primarily what I would call a technocratic enterprise. And by that, I mean it's um, it's in a certain sense uh, an art or skill that can be learned via a kind of technocratic study of what it is that makes organizations run, how they work. Um, you know, some of the literature will say, for example, management is a conservative enterprise, and it doesn't mean conservative politically. It merely means that managers' goals are to keep the ship afloat simply, like to deal with things such that the enterprise itself persists. And this requires a certain kind of conservatism and, in fact, a hostility to change. So what you have are policies. And anytime there's a, pro a problem, you consult a written policy. 
And of course, television makes uh, fun of this in any sitcom in which there's a boss who anyone hates. You know, that we have to consult the policy. If you've ever seen this, you know, this movie Office Space or even Michael Scott, who's like mm-hmm. not quite a very good manager precisely because that's not him. And that's why he's funny. And so you can see that management, I mean, you know, those are all, of course, dramatizations, but there's some true kernel there that we laugh at when we think about management and what it entails and what it requires. It's a bit of a bore and it requires a certain kind of personality. Now, that's not wholesale true. I'm just making a straw man for the sake of illustration. But my view is that leadership is different from this insofar as if management's goal is to maintain the enterprise, the goal of a leader is to lead the enterprise. And that might well mean adding on to it, destroying it, not consulting policy, but breaking policy, writing new policy, you know, all these sorts of things. There are the questions that managers get, and I mean, you know, middle managers get, are questions which can, which are answerable, presumably because the enterprise has been confronted with those questions in the past. The questions that leaders get uh, a lot of times, whether they're uh, leaders of teams in the middle of an organization or leaders at the very top, there's no handbook for that. There's no handbook for what you're going to do next, you know, uh, in this regard. And so in my view, leadership requires a different sort of education, uh, a non-technocratic education, which makes the mind agile, free, curious, and broad so that it can deal with problems which no handbook can foresee. And I have in mind exactly what we talked about a moment ago when we talked about Mr. Zuckerberg, Mr. Dorsey testifying before Congress. Those are not in the handbook. That's not there. And and the same thing Tristan Harris faced as, a, as not a famous founder, but just a guy who's trying to make, uh, you know, Gmail better. You know, when somebody said, well, you know what we should do? We should incorporate X feature. And he sits there and thinks, you know, that could be addictive. Uh, I don't know about that. You know, that's that's also a leadership position. And to have the the frame of mind to think about that and not just say, well, that's what corporate wants or that's what my team leader wants and that's what we're going to do. So leadership requires an intellectual agility, uh, a freedom precisely from the constraints of technical uh, or managerial thought. And I think that that requires a study of all sorts of things uh, in a a, a great curiosity so that you can make yourself literate about the problems which are unknown to you, which might come your way. Well, I've got to read a book on this. I've never, I didn't know anything about politics. I'm a computer programmer. I better go read some, you know what I mean? It requires a kind of uh, curiosity. And I like how you bring um, the historical aspect as well, you know, looking at famous leaders from the past, which I, I think we've kind of steered away from in my uh, you know, experience in the last maybe decade, people are really trying to recreate the wheel. But I like how you're actually going back and you're saying, no, let's actually find some good, um, good leaders in history and follow kind of the actions that they have as a model. Yeah. And, you know, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And, you know, I try to preface everything I'm going to say with um, something about how someone might criticize what I do, because I'm conscious of what the criticisms might be. And of course, this is some people might refer to what I do as something like a perpetuation of what was once called the great man theory, which is to say there are these great people and we, you know, we look up to them and these sorts of things. Um, I think there's something to uh, that theory. I don't, one doesn't have to be a man or a woman or any, any, you can learn from anyone, but I think that the study of human greatness ought not to be denigrated precisely because these people are our teachers. There are, there are great people who have done extraordinary things from whom we can learn. And that's not a shameful thing. That's not an undemocratic thing. Uh, They're there to teach us. And so what I like to do is to say, 
there are people who have stood in some really difficult shoes. You know, you think about Abraham Lincoln, you think about Martin Luther King, you think about Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, first female in the Supreme Court. These people were uh, uh, trailblazers and they uh, have an accumulated storehouse of knowledge about which they've written that's just there for the taking. For anybody who wants to read, consult, ingest, take it into their hearts, their minds, their DNA, you can take parts of these great people from the past, learn their lessons, and become not them, not duplicates of them, but yourself guided by their wise hands. And, and uh, that's what we try to do. And that's why I think the study of history is so important. You know, people ask me questions. I'm a political scientist by training about our politics all the time. And they say, well, this has got to be just the worst it's ever been in world history. And I say, well, I, you know, you ought to read about the French Revolution. Uh, we should talk about the Civil War. You know, there are, there are you know, uh, to say nothing of the ancient world, um, human beings have done a lot worse uh, than quibble over, you know, who their president uh, in a free and fair election should be. So my sense is that a kind of historical perspective, not merely on events, but on human beings and the events that they have confronted, can uh, empower and fill the soul of an ambitious young leader or uh, an old and weathered one who's looking for some new juice. That resonates with me so much. And I, you know, I think of, you know, people saying, well, in our modern world, we have we have modern problems, right? We have modern problems and they're brand new and, and society's never seen this before. And, and I just, I almost chuckle when I hear this. I, I understand why people say it, but if you go back and you look at, you know, I like to look at ancient philosophy and I study Stoicism and, and Buddhism. And if you go back 2000 years in, in our history, which is really actually not that long ago, these were the same problems, the same, same problems that we're wrestling with today they were wrestling with pretty much the same thing back then. So I think the question becomes um, if these are not new problems, I, I do think they take a different flavor in, in the modern world, but I think fundamentally they're the same leadership problems we've been seeing for thousands of years. And so I guess the question for me, and, and maybe you can expand on this is why, why are we not figuring this out? If, if these are the same problems we've had for 2000 years, why, why are we still struggling to, to maybe, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, how, we're, we're struggling to solve these problems in leadership. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Shadow? Well, you know, it's hard. I think, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think that's the reason. It's really hard. It's hard work. And here's the other thing, um, in addition to it just being difficult to imbibe these things, especially, it's especially difficult given the way our education system is structured, because as you, I mean, you have noticed and your listeners have probably noticed, I teach in an engineering leadership program, yet I do not think that we need to study only leaders in science. I think an engineer can learn something from a political leader. I think a political leader can learn something from a scientist. Leadership itself transcends disciplines. It transcends, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln has something to teach Mark Zuckerberg. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, Albert Einstein, you know, has something to teach Barack Obama. You know, I mean, I, I think that there's no leadership is itself its own transdisciplinary field. And I think one of the reasons it's so difficult to uh, cultivate uh, the kinds of human beings uh, in the pedagogical way that I've described is our education system. And I mean, higher education in particular, and this is why CU has been so good to me, is that it doesn't typically permit this kind of cross or transdisciplinary study. In other words, 
you come to study business and you're going to study business. You come to study engineering. And I know because I have the students every day, mechanical, chemical, this, these things are hard. They're rigorous. You got to take a ton of courses in them. You don't really have time for much else. And the question from my mind is whether that's really true and whether that's doing a service to the students, the society, uh, or engineering as such. And so it seems to me that um, the difficulty is that we seem to push back against, first, uh, first and foremost, how hard the study is, how hard the endeavor is. But second, the educational apparatus that would be required to really cultivate a mind like uh, the example I use is Wilbur and uh, Orville Wright, the Wright brothers, uh, two, the two Americans who did not have a college education, who solved the problem of flight for the cost of $1,000 from their bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio. How did they do that? Uh, what, what was it? What was it about them? I mean, uh, it's harder to fly than it is to program a computer. I mean, flying is no joke when no one's ever done it before. Um, and so, uh, what was it about them? And so, I've written this article recently in Scientific American, in which I showed that it was that they were broadly curious. They didn't fit into any institutional mold. They didn't go to an engineering school and study this. And they would read books on biology, on art, history, philosophy. In fact, reading books on biology helped them uh, analyze the bird's wings and see how a, a flying craft can turn itself. And then they were like, well, we should make the wings torsional so that they twist. This is how birds turn. Um, why can't we do that? And when you see flaps on an airplane, that's the innovation of the Wright brothers that they got from birds. And so this is what I have in mind. that These problems are difficult to solve because it requires a mind which is free of any disciplinary uh, boundary. And we don't really cultivate those anymore. Speaking on a free mind quite a bit in this podcast already, um, tell us about your podcast, which is called, if I'm not mistaken, The Free Mind. Yeah, so The Free Mind podcast uh, will launch in 2021. Um, we've recorded a lot of, of it now. We just want to have a big uh, chunk of stuff before we launch it. But my goal with that was to sit down with academics, public intellectuals, people who have something interesting to say in a venue in which there are no academic, political, social pressure, in which anything, any idea can be discussed by reasonable people of goodwill and good faith, and we're not passing any judgment on anybody for criticizing something that's fashionable. We might say very unfashionable things. We want to you know, challenge the listener, even if the listener thinks we're completely crazy, we hope to, to give reasoned arguments for uh, the views that the guest is discussing. And this just occurred to me as something that would be valuable, especially in the context of a university, when in my view, all too often, there are pressures to conform to certain ideologies or say certain things. In my view, the university is about ideas, not ideology. And the difference between the two is that ideologies have already determined what the truth is. Ideas are put forth in the spirit of truth-seeking. Here are two ideas that are competing. Neither one has calcified into an ideology yet. Let's hear them out. We don't know what the truth is. And so the podcast is really an attempt to restore the spirit of inquiry by reasonable, intelligent people of goodwill and to discuss ideas no matter where they may lead, as long as they're uh, propounded uh, and explained in the spirit of genuine truth-seeking. All right, let's go there. I'm reading, or I'm working my way through the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, 
I read that. And, and as a professor at the university, uh, I shudder uh, when I when I hear some of the stories of faculty basically getting forced out of their teaching jobs because they said the wrong thing. And almost across the board, it's not because they meant any ill will by it. They just said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, and there was public outrage and, and this idea of cancel culture. And if they, you know, a lot of times this is being driven by students. And if there's enough of an uproar, uh, they're forced to let go of, of, you know, people that, again, were, were not intending to be uh, evil in any way. So I guess my, my question to you, Shiloh, is does, does that make you nervous? I mean, we're opening up a big can of worms. And I totally agree with you, by the way but we're opening a big can of worms when you might say something that somebody's going to be offended by, you know, I like to say it's like stepping, you know, walking through the minefield. When am I going to step on that mine? And uh, all of a sudden everything's going to come crashing down. Does that worry you at all? Yeah, I know it's a difficult question. And uh, I think it's, it's actually a good one for, for our purposes on this podcast, because this is not simply something that faculty need to, worry about, but leaders themselves are forced into resignation for saying the wrong things in any com- in companies uh, all around the world. So so this is a problem that has its home or its most uh, perhaps radical or obvious expression in the university, but which has leaked into uh, corporate culture, um, certainly in America and perhaps worldwide in some senses. So, But you ask, Ron, whether it bothers me or whether it worries me. Uh, me personally, and this is speaking just for me, no. And the reason is, I would rather not do the job that I do than have to do the job that I do in a way in which free inquiry, which is precisely the purpose of the university, is prohibited. In other words, if free inquiry goes belly up, the university goes belly up with it. That's what it's for. It's for uh, the pursuit of truth, wherever that pursuit may lead, even into the darkest reaches of the human psyche. Um, it's precisely the job of the faculty member to combat uh, dogma, to combat orthodoxy, and to make sure that our opinions don't calcify so that anything that we believe we can back up with reason. And it's conceivable that someone might say, quote unquote, the wrong thing, uh, and it may well be wrong, in which case they're fallible, we're all fallible, and we should approach them with a spirit of generosity. And we should remember our own fallibility. And we should say to them, you're fallible just like me. And of course, there are exceptions to this rule if someone is you know, spewing hatred from a position of leadership. But this is very rare. You don't find, I mean, the CEOs who say things that are out of touch uh, or faculty who say things that are out of touch, they're not typically spewing vitriol and hatred the way you would find on 4chan. They've just made an ill-considered remark, which any sensible person, I mean, 90% of these cases could be like, yeah, I get it. You probably shouldn't have said it, you know, around the dinner table with your family. You could say he probably shouldn't, she shouldn't have said that, but, uh, you know, you get a pass. We're not willing to give people a pass anymore. So that's a problem. But if we allow ruling dogmas to determine how we can think and what we can say, then we fall into the trap of not being a a university, an an educational institution anymore, but being in a certain way, a religious organization. We Mm -hmm. say, here's a dogma. You have to repeat this and think this and only this. And if you think that this is wrong, you are a sinner and you must repent. That's not what we do at a university. We say, look, if you disagree with me, tell me why, give me a good argument. 
if you're right and it's true, I owe it to myself to believe what you believe because it's more reasonable and it's truer. And I'm a good faith pursuer of the truth. Like that's what I'm here to get is closer to the truth. And so if that enterprise goes belly up or is no longer prohibited, uh, you know, I'll go be a postman or something. I, I don't want to, I don't want to work at the university anyway. And so those of us who believe in the university as it was originally conceived as an institution whose mission is the pursuit of truth wherever it may lead have to model that behavior for the students and not be scared of them or anything else. I'm going to take that, that transcript and, and print that on my wall. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. And I think it just goes down to, to have the courage to, to have those, uh, those hard discussions. Um, I, I will be honest, I still struggle with it a little bit in the classroom. And I think it's a valuable thing though. And I also agree with you, Shiloh, that if that goes away, what, what are we doing here? And, and so um, I love yeah. that, that you and take that stand. I take that stand and, and I would just say in conclusion, it requires responsibility on the part of the faculty member or the CEO. I'm not saying that they ought to get up there and just spew out whatever kind of nonsense you know, that they want to spew. That's not, that's not what free inquiry is. Free inquiry is, I have a reasoned objection, which I think I can give an argument for, which I would like to introduce you to and get you to make better by attacking it. Uh, and if it's false, I'm going to let that go. And I'm going to say that was a conviction. That's not the truth. But if it's true, I'm going to say, well, it looks like we're onto something here. And so the, when I say the faculty have to model it, they have to themselves be models of civic discourse in the pursuit of truth, wherever it may lead. And that comes with responsibility. So this enterprise is not merely something that this truth seeking enterprise is not merely something um, that uh, can be done. Uh, just by going in and saying whatever you want, whatever occurs to you, however it occurs to you, you as a faculty member, you as a leader have to give thought to how you speak, your reasons have to be presented uh, in a logical, meaningful way, and you have to be guided by your best lights. Um, but if that's the case, then then you're doing it right, even if you're wrong. That's okay. It's okay to be wrong. People should know that. It's okay. And Shiloh, I'm definitely, uh, before we run out of time, I want to make a few minutes to talk about your new book. Um, I know you've spent uh, the better half of a year or longer on that. You were at Princeton for a good chunk of that time working on this book. Can you talk to us a little bit about that before we uh, head out? Yeah, I've got a number of irons in the fire, which maybe I can address broadly. Um, so I'd recently, in 2018, written a book on a philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, who I'm all constantly fascinated by and who perhaps I derived some courage from because he said untimely things all of the time. And by untimely, I mean things that were not in fashion. He was not scared to say things that are not in fashion in the spirit of truth seeking. And so that really moved me and made me uh, who I am today. And I very much enjoyed writing that book. I was just on a year long fellowship at Princeton University in which I began uh, a number of projects, some perhaps more uh, publicly facing and some more academic. The publicly facing things, you know, I, I conducted a fairly deep study of the Wright brothers and wrote a nice little article for Scientific American. But one of the things that I'd like to do in the future, and then I've begun the Wright brothers essay was my first, uh, perhaps sort of mini chapter in, is I'm working on uh, a book which would take those leaders from the past who were women and men of genuine curiosity and try to show, as I've tried to show in this conversation, the link between the cultivation of curiosity in the free mind and leadership. 
that people like the Wright brothers were curious people, that people like Abraham Lincoln, who uh, grew up in a poor family and who would walk 20 miles to obtain a book to read, who studied Euclid, uh, who's a Greek geometer on his own and was doing Greek geometry uh, as a man in his 20s, who read Shakespeare, uh, who read the Bible, whose speeches, if you read, are filled with Shakespearean and biblical reference and are organized as a geometric proof that there's something to these sorts of minds. I'm not saying it's causation, but there's at least correlation between this kind of curiosity, intellectual curiosity and leadership. And we see this in people. I just taught a biography, for example, of Sandra Day O'Connor, who I mentioned a moment ago, who was one of the first uh, female law students at Stanford. She was an undergraduate there and she loved to study philosophy. And she constantly throughout her career cited her courses in Western civilization philosophy, you know, the constitution, great uh, literature as the most formative influence on her. And she just loved reading those books. So, you know, there are people like this. You could think about uh, W.B. Du Bois, who talks about Shakespeare and how he walks with Shakespeare and they, they cross the color line together. He doesn't see Shakespeare as any different from him. You know, you can see this. And so I want to show that there's a connection between this kind of curiosity, this intellectual athleticism and the preparation of a mind for a leadership task. And so it would be a book, uh, or it is a book in which I analyze various leaders, the ones I've mentioned, Winston Churchill, who painted 500 canvases and whose collected works are bigger than Dickens and Shakespeare combined. Um, he wrote histories, also happened to save the West from the specter of Hitler. Present each of these in a vignette for people to read and model themselves after and see. So that would be one. And then the other, it will either be a series of articles that, uh, or a book on um, a great, Ancient writer named Xenophon, who I teach in the engineering leadership program, Xenophon was a student of Socrates 2,000 years ago. He wrote a book called The Education of Cyrus. And The Education of Cyrus is about, uh, it's a fictionalized account of a great Persian leader named Cyrus the Great, who was a real man. Xenophon tells, retells the story of the life of Cyrus the Great, who over the course of his lifetime managed to unite the entire known world. Xenophon was himself a general in the Athenian army had some exposure to leadership, but also was a philosopher, had some, uh, his teacher was Socrates. And so I teach this and the students respond to this book like no other book. And uh, I'm at work on an interpretation right now of just a few of the chapters of the book, which may turn into a comprehensive interpretation of the entire education of Cyrus. But it's a beautiful book because Xenophon is trying to teach lessons about leadership from the point of view of philosophy you know, he goes into things, uh, just the, the basic human questions. What is just? How can we think about justice? What is love? How Do we have erotic longing? What's the relationship between our erotic longing and our ambition? In other words, people who want to lead seem to want to be loved by everyone around them. Clap for me. I'm your leader. Think about a president who walks into a room. Everyone stands up. They clap. There's something, and he called this erotic, and then the Greek term eros is love. He called this erotic uh, using the Greek word, erotic longing of leaders to be loved by the whole world, by everyone around them. Cyrus wanted this. He took over the whole world and gave himself a whole world full of lovers. I'm so I'm so pleased that that it, it circled back around to what I was uh, I've been you know for the last ten minutes wanting to say. I hear this word curiosity come up a lot, and, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of things that you're saying. And, and I'm a I'm a also a, a huge proponent of leaders being learners, right? And to, yeah. to be curious and, and to seek out, you know, when you look at the great leaders throughout history, they all seem to have that, you know, maybe not across the board, but, but it's a lot, there's a lot there to, to kind of pay attention to. And I also 
like the fact that you're talking about philosophy. I feel like we've we've lost touch with the study of philosophy and maybe for good reason. I will say that I've taken a philosophy class, a graduate level philosophy class, and I can see why people don't gravitate toward it in the university no, system. Um, but but the practical side of philosophy, I think, is something that all great leaders should be studying and uh, asking those hard questions. To just kind of sum this up, and we, we want to ask a, a question to you, Shiloh, before we leave. Our theme of, of this podcast is going to be the frontier of leadership. And so where do, where do you see leadership going? Um, and and uh, how can we do better? I guess would be the best way to put that. Yeah, I mean, I think people are rightfully troubled by it, by, by leadership as a pursuit. I always tell my students, if you open up the headlines in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, on any given day, you'll find some sensational headline about either a Silicon Valley leader, some leader in industry, or the president of the United States, or the president of another country. And these, give, these make people scared, and they're usually critical, and look at what these fools are doing type op-eds. So there's reason to be concerned about the future or the, the possibility for competent minds to arise to lead our enterprises, whether they're in the government or uh, in the private sector, forward. So this is very concerning to me. And with respect to the frontier of leadership, I mean, in a way, I have a kind of um, retrospective answer. I mean, the question indicates uh, what are we going to do to look for, you know, looking forward? How can we be forward thinking? But as you both know, and as I've tried to explain, on this podcast, my view is that to look forward, it might behoove us to look backward. In other words, to go forward in the frontier, to look back and say, well, what's been done before? Um, you know, the, the mantra of Silicon Valley for many years, and now they get, uh, certainly this is true of Facebook, was to move fast and break things. My suspicion is that we should move a little slower and uh, keep some things intact. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're there. They've they've worked. They don't. They're not perfect, but there are no perfect solutions. And so, what we want to do is what what the founders said. You know, in the Constitution, we want to make a more perfect union. What that doesn't mean is that we're going to make a perfect union, or that we could ever make a perfect union. We just want it to be more perfect. And so, I say this not with respect just to our union, but with respect to our moral, social, and political lives. Let's try to make those more perfect. That doesn't mean we need to overturn everything and move fast and break things and radically innovate. And I know this probably sounds crazy to some of your business listeners. The reason I say that is because we have come so far on the foundation of good ideas, which are perhaps flawed in some ways and which could use some tinkering. We should do that and we have a right to do that. But you don't have to throw out the whole thing. You know what I mean? And so my sense for the future of leadership, at least what the message I'm trying to convey, is that to, to look forward, look backward, find somebody on whose shoulders you can stand, um, perhaps a number of people on whose shoulders you can stand. Look at the problems that they face. Look at how similar they are to yours. Then adapt their wisdom to your situation and then take a step forward into a new frontier. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from getting in on these important leadership discussions. It'll also help us grow the show and continue bringing better content each time you hear from us.